Welcome to episode 8 of the Forensic Files. I'm Dr. N. This episode is coming out a lot later than usual. But on the bright side, the episode will be longer and hopefully will make up for the delay. Right now, I know there's a lot of uncertainty around the world concerning the coronavirus pandemic. And I also know there are a lot of listeners from many different countries other than the United States. I truly hope everyone listening right now is safe and healthy and doing everything you can to flatten the curve. Today, I'd like to talk about the serial killer typologies. Holmes and de Berger were some researchers who classified serial killers based on their motives. So they looked for things like patterns to group killers based on the motivation behind their crimes. This way of classifying serial killers is not 100% accepted, but it does provide the means to group serial killers in a more meaningful way. The first type of serial killer I want to talk about is the visionary killer. So visionary killers are psychotic. Most of them claim to hear voices or experience hallucinations or delusions that compel them to kill. The next typology I want to talk about is the mission-oriented killer. Mission-oriented killers are not psychotic. They are driven to kill by a belief that it is their need and mandated duty to eliminate individuals whom they see as quote-unquote undesirable. Historically, these individuals have included sex workers, members of the LGBTQ community, women, and certain members of racial or religious groups. There are two subgroups related to this type of killer. They include God-mandated and demon-mandated killers. They claim that either a hallucinated god or demon figure forced them to kill these undesirable people. The next typology I'd like to talk about is hedonistic killers. So hedonistic killers actually enjoy killing their victims. Their motivation is the feeling of pleasure that they get from the act itself. They don't really view people as living beings. Uh, they see them more as objects from which they gain their satisfaction. There are a few subtypes here to further categorize hedonistic killers as well. Those include lust killers, thrill killers, and comfort killers. Lust killers are motivated by sex. And I know that was one of the myths that I talked about on the last episode, um, but there are obviously serial killers that are motivated by sex. It's just not all of them. Thrill killers are motivated by the excitement brought on by the killing itself. And comfort killers are motivated by what they can materialistically gain from the killing. So that material gain can come in a lot of different forms, from gaining money to producing new business opportunities to eliminating a competition. Comfort killers are concerned with maintaining that comfortable lifestyle and they'll do anything to get what they want. And the last typology we'll talk about is power seekers. So power seekers need to have complete control over the life and death of other people. There's also this idea, apart from the typologies, of a broader classification system that Resler and his colleagues developed to distinguish serial killers and help with the profiling process itself. So the system is based on the method of killing, 
how smart the killer is and the emotionality expressed during the crime along with the condition of the crime scene. These characteristics helped define organized versus disorganized serial killers. For organized serial killers, they were seen as somewhat intelligent and socially competent. They have the ability to control their emotions during the killing and often have thoroughly planned out actions. They use restraints on their victims as a power move to assert control, and they're absolutely understanding what they are doing is wrong, and they enjoy the pain that they cause. They often enjoy following the news coverage about their crimes after they happen. In contrast, disorganized serial killers are not very intelligent or socially proficient. They tend to be anxious and a lot less meticulous about planning their crimes. And because of this, they often leave a lot more evidence at the scene of the crimes compared to the organized killers. So they don't really typically enjoy following news coverage about their crimes. Early on in the semester when I was teaching this class, I had a student ask me, are all serial killers psychopaths? And that's a really great question. It does seem that those who fall under the organized category have psychopathic traits. They can be quite charming, but manipulative, intimidating, controlling, anything to best suit their needs. So it may be true that most serial killers are psychopaths, but it's really important to understand that not all psychopaths are serial killers. There is a really interesting book that is included in the recommended reading section of the notes for this episode. It's called The Psychopath Test, and it was written by John Ronson, and he's a journalist, so it takes that a different perspective than a typical evidence-based reading that I would recommend. But I thought it was really well written, easy to follow, um, and it follows some complicated topics. So I think it's really accessible for most audiences, which is why I'm recommending it. And it's looking through the journalistic lens of mental health and the concept of psychopathy. So in many ways, it highlights this notion that not all psychopaths are inherently dangerous or serial murderers, and it challenges a lot of the stereotypes that mental illness invokes violence when, in fact, individuals with mental illnesses are much more likely to be the victims of the crime than the perpetrators of it. For a more evidence-based depiction of psychopathy from a psychologist's point of view, there are other recommended books in the recommended reading section of the notes. One is called Snakes in Suits, by Paul Babiak and Robert Hare. So this broader classification system isn't really accepted by all forensic psychologists, criminologists, or criminal investigators. There is research looking into the validity of the classification system that found no evidence of a clear dichotomy in terms of the crime scene characteristics of serial killers. They often display characteristics that are both organized and disorganized. Some serial killers may transition from having more disorganized characteristics to more organized characteristics over the course of their crimes because they are learning and they are evolving like we talked about in the last episode. The Golden State Killer, for example, evolved quite a bit over the course of his killings. A lot of the learning happened before his crimes escalated to serial murder. He fits the power seeker typology quite well, as he would bind his victims, consistently threaten them, and became upset when his power or authority was challenged. His crimes started out 
incredibly disorganized. There was a lot of evidence left at the scene, and the process itself was awkward and unrefined. As he progressed from burglary to rape to murder, his process solidified. He developed an organized sequence of events down to using identical phrasing when ordering victims to follow his instructions. I fall into the camp that nothing's ever really black and white. There's no true dichotomy that killers fall into perfectly. Human beings, even psychopathic serial murderers, are still subject to the complexities and variability of human behavior. So I know last time I promised to give you some interesting case studies and I found quite a few. Um, one of them kind of fell in my lap um, as I was doing all of this research, so we'll start there. So the wonderful hosts over at the Poisoner's Cabinet podcast had a superbly interesting episode a couple of weeks ago about one of the most prolific serial killers of all time that you probably have never heard of. At least I had never heard of her, um, and if you had, then I will eat my words. Even more interesting, it was a woman. So the hosts at the Poisoner's Cabinet were interested in knowing how I would classify this killer, and I thought it would work really perfectly in this episode. It all really fell into place. So some background about this poisoner. Her name was Julia Tofana, and she invented what was called Aqua Tofana, which was a mixture of arsenic, lead, and belladonna, three very potent poisons. The mixture is said to have been able to kill someone with as few as four drops spread out over time to avoid suspicion. It was pretty discreet. It was tasteless, odorless, and colorless. The packaging was also pretty genius. She disguised the poison as powdered makeup, along with religious healing oil. She's believed to have helped over 600 women kill their husbands between the years of 1633 and 1651. Now, 600 is merely the number she confessed to after being caught, and a lot of people believe the number was a lot higher. I would say Tefana was a mixture of mission-oriented and comfort killer. So she maybe thought that the husbands weren't desirable people. Maybe she was in some way thinking she was helping these women. For the comfort killer, I, I don't know if she enjoyed helping people kill their husbands or being the reason they died, but she enjoyed making a living and living a comfortable life. So I think that puts her in the comfort category. And she may very well have been an early women's rights advocate and disagreed with her husband's complete control over his wife. She could have thought she was doing the right thing, performing a public service of sorts to save these women from their overbearing husbands. Either way, this is an extremely interesting case, and I want to thank the Poisoner's Cabinet again for covering it. So go listen to their podcast. It's really, really interesting. They cover a poisoning every week, poisoning case, along with an interesting twist, which is using an ingredient that is inspired by the poison itself. And they incorporate that ingredient into a cocktail. Two of my favorite things, cocktails and murder. Go give them a listen. It's the Poisoner's Cabinet. Cheers. The second serial killer I'd like to talk about today is the Genesee River Killer, or Arthur Shawcross. 
So I'd like to dive into the details of this case and it's a little bit longer than the rest of them because there are so many different details. So Arthur Shawcross murdered 11 women between the years of 1988 and 1990 in New York State. Shawcross claims his early life was fraught with dysfunction and abuse, but that's a claim his family vehemently denies. It's difficult to know what to believe of Shawcross's account, since many serial killers are known to lie about many details of their lives and crimes. Shawcross's own accounts of the time he served in the Vietnam War were also found to be fabricated. He claimed to have killed 39 people, but authorities have no record of any combat kills during his tour. From the information that can be verified, Shawcross didn't do well in school. He had a low IQ and engaged in bullying and violence toward other children. After failing his freshman year of high school and dropping out, he was in and out of jail for criminal activity. In the late 60s, after returning from Vietnam, Shawcross was convicted of arson and served two years of a five-year sentence. A year after his release in 1972, he committed his first murder of 10-year-old Jack Blake. A few days prior to Jack disappearing, Shawcross had taken him fishing. Five months after Jack's disappearance, his body was found. He was suffocated and sexually assaulted. Around the time that Jack's body was found, Karen Ann Hill's body was found under a bridge. She had been raped. She was eight years old. People remembered seeing Shawcross with Karen near the bridge before she disappeared, and Shawcross became an easy suspect. The next month, Shawcross was arrested and he confessed to killing both children. He was sentenced to 25 years in prison. I would love for the story to end here, but unfortunately, it gets much worse. Shawcross served 15 years of his 25-year sentence and was released on parole in 1987. Literally no one was happy about his release, forcing him to leave the area after his release. The authorities actually decided to seal his record, a decision they would soon regret, so that he would have a chance to resettle somewhere else. Only a year after his release, Dorothy Blackburn's body was found in the Genesee River. She was a 27-year-old sex worker. There was little evidence and even less public interest in Dorothy's case because of her profession, so that case went unsolved for over a year. During that time, other sex workers were murdered, but again, little attention was given to them because murder was considered a hazard of their profession. In 1989, the body of Anna Steffen was found with details that linked many of the other murdered sex workers together. She died from asphyxia, and the disposal of her body was very similar to the disposal of Dorothy's body, though her body was found really far from the original murder scene, so the link to a serial killer wasn't formed then either. One month after Anna's body was found, Dorothy Keeler's body was found, another sex worker who also died from asphyxia. Finally, the press catches on to the similarities and coins the name the Genesee River Killer. The police noted there were attempts to hide evidence, which made them believe the perpetrator had previous criminal or military experience. They did scans of locals' criminal records, but remember, Shawcross's record was sealed, so he wasn't an immediate suspect. Then June Strott's body was found. She was neither a sex worker nor a drug user. She was strangled, and her body was mutilated. 
At this point, the police needed help. They turned to the FBI profilers for assistance. They took all 11 unsolved cases of sex workers and grouped them according to method and position where the bodies were found. The resulting profile was a white man in his 20s or 30s who was strong with a prior criminal record. Someone familiar to the area had rapport with his victims because they entered his car willingly. The sex workers in the area had identified a man calling himself Mitch, who was particularly violent and said he had been with the next victim found, Elizabeth Gibson, shortly before her disappearance. They were a little bit closer to cracking the case at this point. Investigators found jeans with an ID in them, that of Felicia Stevens, in December of 1989, and after an aerial search, they actually found the body of June Cicero in January of 1990. The helicopter also spotted a man standing on the bridge next to a van, appearing to either be masturbating or urinating. As expected, Shawcross had returned to the scene of the crime to relive it. He eluded ground patrol, but they were able to track him down through his car registration. In the process of his interrogation, police learned about the prior child murders, his account of his murders in Vietnam. They received confirmation that he was the man sex workers identified as Mitch and the reason for the sealed records in the first place. Even after all of this information was discovered, they still couldn't get Shawcross to confess to the murders they were investigating. Finally, they tied him to the murders by discovering Shawcross had given his girlfriend jewelry that had belonged to one of his victims, June Cicero. He finally caved when they threatened to charge his girlfriend with the killings. He admitted to most of the murders at this point, providing details that he was forced to kill each one. He also admitted to killing two additional women with undiscovered bodies and led investigators to them. Shawcross's defense tried to invoke the insanity defense, but those arguments were quickly dismissed by disproving many of his prior claims. Shawcross was found guilty of 10 instances of second-degree murder and sentenced to 25 years for each count. That's 250 years total. He died of a heart attack in 2008. Because of the inaccuracy of many of Shawcross's accounts, it's really hard to pin down his exact motivation. It appears he falls under the hedonistic killer typology because of the pleasure he gained from the killings and the fact that he would return to the scene of the crime to relive that pleasure. He claims that he was forced to kill these women, which would point to more of a mission-oriented style, but I personally don't believe that's accurate. Some may argue for that typology based on his account coupled with the choice of victim of sex workers, but my belief is that he was using that as an excuse to be declared insane and chose sex workers because he was motivated by sex and new police would not initially put much effort into solving these cases. The next serial killer I'd like to talk about is the Muswell Hill murderer, or Dennis Nilsson. So Dennis Nilsson is believed to have killed at least 15 young men in the late 70s and early 80s in London. He was referred to as the British Jeffrey Dahmer because of the similarity between their crimes. Nilsson enlisted in the British Army for 11 years and served as a police officer briefly as well. He was a civil servant in London during the time he committed the murders. 
All of his victims were men, either students or those experiencing homelessness. Nilsson would find his victims in bars and invite them back to his home. He would strangle and drown them at night and claim to have little to no memory of what occurred when he woke up the next morning. He disposed of the bodies by dismembering them. He burned many of his early victims in his garden, but his downfall came after he moved to a different apartment on an upper floor, which made disposing of the bodies more difficult. He instead kept them inside his apartment, in suitcases in his closet or in plastic bags underneath the floorboards. Eventually, this would arouse suspicion because of the smell, which neighbors reported. He tried to flush the remains down his toilet, but they got stuck, blocking the sewage for the entire building. When the drain was being cleared, workers found fleshy substances inside. They called the police. Nilsson was later arrested, and by this time it was 1983. Interestingly, he apologized for not being able to provide an exact number of people he murdered. When police searched his house, they found three heads in his cupboard and 13 bodies in his former home. Nilsson's desire for company from someone who would not leave him puts him into the category of a hedonistic killer. He was looking to find comfort and affection from others, specifically young men, but couldn't handle the rejection of being left and abandoned. The last killer I'd like to talk about is the deadly soap maker of Correggio, and her name was Leonarda Cianciulli. I am probably not saying that right, so apologies to my Italian listeners or those who know how to pronounce that name. Um, Leonarda was an Italian serial killer between the years of 1939 and 1940. She murdered three women and rendered their remains into tea cakes and soap. Leonardo was an incredibly superstitious woman. Her parents disapproved of her marriage so much that her mom put a curse on them. She had a lot of trouble conceiving and lost many of her children in their early lives. The children who did survive, she wanted to protect at all costs. She decided the best protection for her favorite and eldest son who enlisted in the Italian army was with human sacrifice. She had a pretty thriving soap making business, so she already had a lot of people who trusted her and would come to her for advice, and she would often act as a fortune teller for women in her village. Because of the trust her clients had, this gave her the ability to put them in positions that would make it a lot easier to get away with murdering them. She chose three women from her village and gave them reasons to leave town. She managed to convince the three women to keep their plans a secret from their friends and family and had them pre-write letters to be sent to those friends and family postmarked from their presumed final destination, saying they were okay. Sounds suspicious, right? That's a whole lot of premeditation and planning on her part. Once she lured them into her house, she drugged her victims and killed them with an axe. She then used parts of their bodies to make her soaps, along with tea cakes that she and her son ate as part of this superstitious ritual um, to keep him safe. The tea cakes themselves were made with the dried blood of the victims that she served to not only herself and her son, but also to her neighbors. 
The downfall for her came with the sister of the last victim. She was very suspicious that her sister would up and go and disappear and not contact her after that letter. So the sister called the police and told them that Leonardo was the last person she was seen with, that she was entering her store and they should go talk to her. The police arrested Leonardo and she quickly admitted to her crimes. And in 1946, she was sentenced to 30 years in prison and three years in the criminal asylum. While she was serving her time, in 1970, she died of cerebral apoplexy, which refers to stroke symptoms that occur suddenly due to either bleeding in the brain or a blood clot. From my perspective, Leonardo would be considered a hedonistic comfort killer. She had a clear external motive, and that was to keep her children safe. But she also seemed to enjoy the product of her murders, stating that her tea cakes tasted better with the blood in them. Thank you so much for listening to episode 8. I hope it was interesting and informative. This is my first uh, week recording in my new office. Um, I, we just moved last weekend, so things have been kind of crazy around here, not just because of the virus, but because of all the moving and um, you know not being able to find things like deodorant and charging cables. Um, and you might have noticed near the end of this recording, uh, my new neighbors have a, a dog. Um, she loves to bark. She loves to yell at people. We love her. Her name is Lucy. Um, she's my dog's best friend. And you can definitely hear her in the background. Um, maybe the music's drowning it out, hopefully. But um, if you hear stray dog barking um, or jingle jangling or any weird sounds, it's probably my dog or the neighbor's dogs. <laughs> so bear with me while I figure out the, um, the limits of soundproofing or lack thereof in this new space. Once again, I really hope that all of my listeners and, and all of your friends and family are safe and healthy. Um, I know this is a really weird time for everyone. Working from home for me particularly has been really challenging and I also, um, my part-time job teaching was all put online. So that's been also kind of stressful, really interesting. My students are amazing and they're taking it in stride. So I really appreciate their flexibility uh, with all of the technology blunders that I'm sure I am making. <laughs> so thanks so much for listening and I hope to get another episode out soon. On the next episode, we'll talk about cults and I want to go into some of the some of the famous cults you know pretty prototypical cults and, and cult history uh, but I also want to talk about some of the more recent cult type institutions that maybe some of you haven't heard of or haven't been covered as much on the news um, so I think it'll be a really interesting episode and I hope you'll join me you can listen to the forensic files on the website at the dash forensic dash files dot captivate dot fm which is linked in the episode notes you can also listen on apple podcasts google podcasts spotify stitcher and many many other platforms 
You can find me on Instagram at the Forensic Files Pod. And please reach out if you have any questions, corrections, suggestions, or requests. The email for this podcast is theforensicfilespod at gmail.com. Really loving the questions and the feedback that you've given me so far. Please keep it coming. And I would also very much appreciate if you could leave me a review so more amazing people like you can find the podcast. All episode content was researched, written, and produced by me, Dr. N. All music you hear in the episodes was written and produced by me and classical composer Jeffrey Young.